Okay, so what are we going to start with? We're going to start off with, oh, thank you. We're going to start off with what we think, with what we think is the opposite of suffering. And what Thomas Aquinas and all great philosophers over the centuries have said is what every single human person is looking for. And what is it that every single human person is looking for but happiness, right? You ask anyone, do you want to be happy? Of course they're going to say yes. So happiness, but not just any kind of happiness, right? We want a happiness that will never end. And in fact, Thomas, he starts, um, he starts a part of his Summa Theologiae with the question of what is happiness and where do we find it? So if you'd like to read further on this, you can go to the prima pars, the first part of the second part of the Summa Theologiae, questions one through 17. So we're gonna kind of just go through what he speaks about there, but in a kind of a more um, contemporary key. So think about where people look for happiness, right? So top number one place, wouldn't you say? Money, right? We try to find happiness in money. But why can we not find everlasting happiness in money? Well, because money doesn't last forever, right? It runs out, you can't take it with you. And the thing about money is really tricky, right? You have some money, what happens? You spend it, then you want more money. And then you have more, then you want more, then you want more, then you want more, right? Or you have, you get your stuff, you get your new car, you get your new cell phone, you get your new computer, whatever you get, or you get your new clothes. And then what happens? They get messed up somehow, or scratched, or broken. Or a new version comes out, right? Then all of a sudden you're not happy with the stuff that money has bought you anymore. And also people can use you for your money. And depending on how much money you have and how accessible you are, people may even try to kill you for your money, right? So eh, money is not really working so well to make us everlastingly happy. So people who have a lot of money, do you, can you raise your hand if you know some people who have a lot of money who are not happy? Anybody know people who are, yeah, right? You know people who are, who are not happy even though they have a lot of money. I remember a number of years ago in Forbes magazine, they were interviewing this super successful um, business entrepreneur. He was, only, he was an only child, and he just pressed forward with his career. His parents were supporting him, all that kind of stuff. And then his parents died in the midst of that, but he became untouchable, basically, in his field. And so Forbes magazine had this exclusive interview with him, and they were asking him all of his secrets, which, of course, at this point, he could easily reveal. And you know, at the end, the, the interviewer just kind of had this, what seemed like a throwaway question. He asked, is there anything that you regret? And this very successful man, whose both of his parents had died, he said, well, yes. I would give all the money in the world to have someone who missed me if I didn't come home at night. He never took time to fall in love, to get married, right? Because he was so concerned about money. And now he was afraid to get married because he thought whoever he married would marry him for his money. So we can't find everlasting happiness in money. Okay, what about power? This is another place people look for happiness. Because you think, you know, if I have power, if I'm in control of my life, if I'm in control of other people's lives and they have to look to me, well then, then I would be happy. But if you think about it, if you've ever been in power or had some kind of responsibility, it's actually kind of stressful to be in power, right? You have to make decisions. And simply, it's the fact that 
people aren't gonna like the decisions you make. And some people may just not like you because you are the one in power, right? You have all these kinds of you know, childhood wounds about people in power and trying to control it. And then you also notice the people who do have power um, kind of never have enough power, right? Think of those great conquerors, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, they always wanted more power. And how do people treat you when you have power? Well, they want to manipulate you or use you. They may plot against you. They may even try to kill you again. So you live in fear, just like people with a lot of money. Okay, what's another place we try to look for everlasting happiness? Beauty, right? It goes back, it's even in the fairy tales. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Now, why do we strive for, for beauty or some kind of physical perfection? Probably because we think that it makes us lovable, right? It, it gains us admiration, attention. But the problem is beauty itself is not lasting, right? You get old, wrinkly, get a little bit chubby. And then there's always someone more beautiful or someone more handsome. And then there's also that really frustrating thing, right? They, they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And so, you know, like there's this one person you really, really want to think that you're beautiful, but they don't think you're beautiful. And then there's other person over here that you do not want to think that you're beautiful, thinks that you're beautiful, right? So it's a little bit frustrating. Okay. And then, you know, they also call supermodels, supermodels. They've called them some of the most tortured souls alive. Well, why, right? Think about the life of supermodels. They're only valued for how they look. And so there's not any type of internal qualities, any type of um, you know, intelligence that they're valued for, but also they live in a highly competitive type of environment, right? That's, it's kind of, they're cruel to each other, right? They're, they're, living in, they're living in constant envy of one another. And I'm sure you also are familiar with some of the stories of supermodels in the news who've committed suicide, like Rushlana Korskanova, she threw herself from like a 30-story New York apartment into oncoming traffic. And then there were the Ramos sisters who became anorexic and ended up dying of anorexia, um, Anna Carolina Nestin, right? So they, they were literally dying to be beautiful. And they have these crazy diets, right? Like they, the Kleenex diet, the cotton ball diet, which is very dangerous, by the way. Right, so that's so beneath the dignity of the human person, right, to be eating Kleenex and cotton balls. But it's that, that strong, strong, strong desire that they have to be beautiful. But there's something else behind that. Okay, and they're not gonna find it in beauty, right? Where's another place we look? Pleasure. So, okay, pleasure. We can all relate to finding happiness and pleasure, right? Brownies, pizza ice cream, uh, all those great things. So, but how long does that brownie pleasure last? Just as long as it takes you to eat the brownie, right? I don't know how long that takes you, like two minutes, 30 seconds, depending on you. Um, <laughs> and what happens, like, you eat one brownie and go, oh, pleasure. And then you eat another brownie, more pleasure. And so you eat another brownie, that leads to more pleasure, and then another brownie, more pleasure, is that how it works? You just get more and more, no, it's the opposite, right? It starts to go down. You start to get, you start to feel sick, right? They say pleasure surfeits, right? There's this disgust caused by excess of pleasure. So not only is the is pleasure short-lived, right? Whether it's sexual pleasure, al pleasure from alcohol, pleasure from drugs, whatever. Not only is that pleasure short-lived, but those pleasurable things can actually turn us into slaves. Right? We know that one of the greatest scourges right now in our society 
is this addiction to pornography. But then there's also addiction to alcohol, addiction to drugs that is ruining so many people's lives, rather than bringing them happiness. Okay, fame, right? If we think, okay, I can find, can I find happiness in fame? So many people have tried to do it. So think about music, the top 10, right? The most popular. The people who are in the top 10 now, are they the same people who were in the top 10 a year ago? Six months ago? No, it's changing all the time, right? So popularity, we can't find something stable in fame or popularity because it depends on other people, right? Our fame depends on other people and other people are fickle. They're changing their minds constantly, right? The fads are always changing. And then did you notice that famous people, they also lose their privacy, right? They've got the paparazzi following after them. They've got gossip mongers and they even have, you know, false stories lies running around about them because they're people who are jealous of, etc. And then, you know, there's, um, in, in, in sociology, there's a term that they use to describe this phenomenon. Uh, it, the term is anomie. And if you look at the etymology, it's like without, right? A is without, um, nombre in Spanish is name, right? And then, so that this is a French term, right? So anomie, without a name. So it's like they don't have an identity. And they use this word to describe the social estrangement caused by fame, right? The loneliness that famous people experience. Why do they experience this loneliness? Because they're afraid to get too close to people, right? Because they don't want to you know, somehow destroy their fame, or maybe they're afraid of that kind of intimacy. And I'm sure you also can think of famous people who are not happy, right? And we're always a little bit shocked when we hear about the suicide of famous people, right? Um, Elvis Presley, Robin Williams. Um, we were just talking about Ariana's, um, Ariana Grande's boyfriend, uh, Chris Cornwell, Chester Bennington, right? These are some people who, who seem to have everything that you could ever want, and yet they're not happy. Finally, where do we look? Other people, right? Why can't we find happiness, everlasting happiness, in another person? This one's the trickiest, in a sense, because out of all these six places we've been discussing, this is the one that comes closest to making us happy. But why can't people make us everlastingly happy? Well, think about your best friend um, when you were a child. Where are they now, right? They've moved away, or you've moved away. People change, or they leave us, or they abandon us, or they die. And then, you know, also some people who may be important to us have unreasonably high expectations of us. And so we feel like we can never be good enough for them. So actually being with them actually depresses us rather than making us happy. Or they misunderstand us, they betray us, or they may even influence us to sin. They can use us. So they're weak. They make mistakes, they hurt us. And I don't know if you've noticed this or if you've come to this realization that no one can ever understand you perfectly, right? No one, no visible human being, right, can ever understand you perfectly. Of course, God can understand you perfectly, but no one can ever understand you perfectly. And no one can fill you completely. And you know, working with young people over the years, I think this is one of the huge mistakes, one of the great disservices. Um, you know, newly married people, young husbands and wives make, is they have this unrealistic expectation that my spouse is going to make me happy. 
right? And that's really unfair because you have, what do they call it? A God-sized hole inside of you, right? Only God can fill us completely. So what is, your, what is the role of your spouse? It's really like John Paul II talks about, right? The two walking side by side together toward God, right? You're supposed to help one another in your relationship with God. You're not supposed to become the God of another person, right? That's Romeo and Juliet. That's going to end in death. So other people cannot make us everlastingly happy. But there's something really amazing about this human experience that we have of looking for happiness in these things and not finding it is that we start to discover, okay, it's not really found in that thing, the money, the pleasure, the beauty. But you know what? There's something else that I'm looking for in that thing that's a deeper, genuine spiritual value. Okay, so think about this. In money, what are we really looking for? What's the deeper, genuine spiritual value we're looking for in money? Isn't it peace, security, rest from work? Right, because we don't want to be working all the time. That's why we want this kind of like the comfort or the peace, the stability that money will give us. What is it that we're looking for in power? Well, a sense of control, right? A sense of self-mastery, a sense of freedom, like you know what's going to happen next. And that's a genuine spiritual growth. What are we looking for in beauty? I think first and foremost, to be loved. That's what we really want. And beauty is a certain kind of perfection, right? And beautiful things are lovable. What are we looking for in pleasure? I think this is a really interesting one. What are we looking for in pleasure? Because it's one of the ones that's most attractive to people right now. Believe it or not, I think we're actually looking for joy, right? Because that's what pleasure gives us this sense of. This, it gives us a sense of joy. Like I remember um, Sister Nicholas Marie, she, uh, works, she was working in our kitchen over the summer, and she made this amazing carrot cake from scratch. Okay? So I'm sitting there eating this carrot cake. And I was thinking to myself, there is a God, and he loves me. <laughs> right? There's something in the experience of joy. Or even just when you see something beautiful, um, when you see something beautiful, you experience something beautiful, something that gives you pleasure, don't you automatically kind of have this instinct that there is a someone behind this who made it for me, right? Someone made the sunset for me. Someone made the rain for me. Someone made the carrot cake for me, right? And it's really, you're kind of actually resting in the love of that person who made the thing that's giving you pleasure. Um, Thomas says that joy is a rest in the possession of a good. Isn't that gorgeous? Joy is rest in the possession of a good. And I remember back when I went to visit the National Dominicans for the first time many years ago, I remember being so struck by their joy. I said, these sisters are so joyful. I didn't say these sisters are so happy, I don't know why. I just said, these sisters are so joyful, but they're so genuine and real, right? They're not like, you know, painted over or whatever. They're, and, and, you know, because I saw like two won an argument. And <laughs> but there's still like a real, there's a real joy. 
And I said, I wonder where that joy was coming from. Okay, so I, I, that was after I visited the city. Then I go back home to Texas. And would you believe the Dominican is preaching a homily? And the first words out of his mouth, my first day back after visiting the National Dominicans, he comes up to Ambo and he says, Thomas Aquinas says, joy comes from the firm conviction that we are loved. Isn't that amazing? Joy comes from the firm conviction that we are loved. And I realized, you know what, that's why the sisters are so joyful. Because they have this firm conviction that they're loved by each other, that they're loved by God. It's interesting, one of the, one of the great spiritual writers of our own time, Jacques Philippe, he says, where there is no joy, there can never be enough pleasure. Isn't that interesting to think about? Where there is no joy, there can never be enough pleasure. But you can try to um, medicate yourself with pleasurable things, but it'll never be enough if there's not this deep, genuine joy. What are we looking for in fame? Well, I think it's what we all want. What do we all really want? We want to be known. We want to, we want to be set apart. We want to be special, right? We want to be the favorite. <laughs> or we want to be known for some type of noble accomplishment. Okay, finally, other people. What are we, what is the genuine spiritual value that we're looking for in other people? Again, to be known, to be loved, to be understood, right? For someone to see you, to hear you. We want to belong. We want to be part of a group, a community, a family, right? So it's beautiful, the community here, um, the Catholic community here, the T, that's part of it, it's the larger, um, larger part of the TI, right? This is, it's a beautiful thing to belong to. And what happens when you belong? Well, when you're not there, you're missed, right? So it's like, oh, well, where's, where's Ray Hyde? Um, and then when you come back, you're greeted with open arms, right? You're welcome, people light up to see you. That's what it means to belong. Okay. So all of that was a preface to speaking about suffering. And why did I choose that as the preface? It's because I would like to propose to you that suffering redeems all that is good in our desires. And believe it or not, you can find in suffering these genuine spiritual goods that you're trying to find, that we're all trying to find, in these other places. But the problem is, nobody likes suffering, right? We like suffering in the, in the, in the, ab in the abstract, <laughs> right? But when it comes to actually are really suffering, nobody likes it. So what's the best way to talk about suffering? The best way to talk about suffering, I think, is through narrative, right? It's through stories. So the talk I'm about to give you is based on this article that I wrote for the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. And it's here that I actually give you the justification for the use of narrative. So please feel free to read this article. I'll give Brennan a copy, and we can make it also available via PDF to you if you're interested. But now I'm just going to go ahead and jump in to story. So I'm going to start with a narrative. Here it goes. There's a Yeah. 
Okay, how does that make any sense? <laughs> right? Look at these people. <laughs> um, you know, they're not, they're, all their favorite stuff is ruined. They're not getting any sleep. They can't even be alone with each other. And, you know, remember the scene, they're walking, um, they're walking through the park and they're loaded down with the, di the diaper bags, right? And then they see the carefree, jogging couple. Um, and, and then they find out that they're expecting another child. And they're overjoyed, right? How does that make any sense? I think the Lord tells us in the gospel, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But who loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will find it. So it was in giving their lives away, right? And their sacrifice for their son in those small, ordinary, daily things that they found joy, that they found love. And isn't that what love is like? It wants to give more. It wants to include more. So love brings this joy. Now, if you ever want to show this video to anyone, you can just Google Coke Life Argentina. I think it's a beautiful piece of work. And actually, it also rings true, because in my work with, uh, with again, married couples, I've seen it again and again, right? Husbands and wives talking about each other. And they'll say, you know, when we, when we were first dating, you know, he was a lot of fun and he was super smart and just really, you know, funny, all this kind of stuff. And she said, and then she'd say, but you know, when we, when we started to have children, I saw a totally different side of him. Like he became a father. I saw him like making these heroic sacrifices. He'd wake up in the middle of the night to bring the baby to me when the baby needed to be nursed. And she said, it just made me fall in love with him on a whole different level, right? Because he didn't, he became my hero in a way that he had never been before. And then, you know, husbands will say the same thing about their wives. You know, I was in love, I was in love with my wife when she was my girlfriend, when she was my fiance. But then when I saw her as the mother of my son, I was just blown away, right? She became even more beautiful to me. So it's this love, this self-sacrifice, that, and the suffering that comes along with it, right, that draws this, this love, this beauty out of us. And so what is actually happening to a married couple? Each is becoming more beautiful to the other. Each is becoming more special, more loved. And also, each has more self-mastery, right? They can't sleep in anymore. They can't just watch what they want to watch. Like we were just talking about this the other day, the sisters. Um, you know, when after, after parents get married and they start having kids, they don't watch the same movies they used to watch. Now, all of a sudden, they're watching Disney movies, right? Um, so with this self-sacrifice, um, there's more, but they also have more freedom, more peace, more security. So these are the fruits of suffering, right? Suffering begins to make the soul more beautiful. Okay, now let's add another layer of complication. Correr, correr, hasta aquí. 
One aspect we can take out of this is notice how it all begins with fear, right? Fear of the unknown, fear of suffering, fear of not knowing, fear of not being in control, fear of not having. And it's this fear that grips us on the threshold of suffering, right? We ask, why me? Why now? Why at this time? I can't handle this, or we, start, we think all of this. But what did one of the greatest spiritual writers of all time, St. John of the Cross, tell us? He said, to come to enjoy what you have not, you must go by a way in which you enjoy not. To come to the knowledge you have not, you must go by a way in which you know not. To come to the possession of what you have not, you must go by a way in which you possess not. To come to be that which you are not, you must go by a way in which you are not. Right? To go by a way in which we don't understand where we don't know, where we don't have the strength. You know, I think we, if, if you're like everybody else, I'm like this, we think that to be happy, we have to have life on our terms. But one day we make this glorious discovery that life is so much better on God's terms. And isn't that what these mothers discovered? that their child, who they started to love, 
Just one smile at a time, one kiss at a time, one diaper at a time, right? That their child, whom at first they were really afraid of, right? Afraid of raising, afraid of the suffering. Their child, they discovered, was absolutely delightful, absolutely adorable. Suffering the crisis shows us what we really are. And it invites us to become what we are not yet. Right? Think about any kind of suffering you've been through. Right? You were in one place, maybe less mature, less strong. And then the suffering, what did it do? It brought you to a completely different level. I love the way that Leon Bloy puts it. He says, man has places in his heart that do not yet exist. And so into them enters suffering so that they might have existence. Isn't that gorgeous to think about? Right, that we have these places in our hearts that do not yet exist. But when suffering enters into our hearts, those places can exist. It's this whole idea, also St. Therese loved it, it was in one of the Psalms. I will run the way of your commandments, for you make broad my heart. Right, this, this idea that when we live according to God's commandments, it stretches us, right? When we can't lie, we can't steal, we can't commit adultery, we can't look at pornography, right? It makes us, it stretches us, it makes us love more. So this is what suffering does. It forces us to abandon the illusion of control, right? It gets us to stop thinking of ourselves. It gets us out of the prison of ourselves. It matures us. It humbles us. And when it's doing that, it also makes us more lovable. It makes us more real, more wise, more compassionate, right? No longer hung up on achieving some type of imaginary perfection, right? And this is one of the hardest things when you're in college. We have this imaginary perfection that we're all wrapped up in, and it's, it's consuming us. We have this illusory dream of the way we think things should be. But then when suffering enters in, right, God intercepts. What does the suffering do? It makes us stronger. And this is the point at which St. Paul encourages us, right? He says to be like those athletes. Run so as to win, right? Embrace that suffering. Now, this video we just watched, you can Google it by typing in Dear Future Mom. But you know, this video, it's, I think it is, it is a masterpiece. And so sad, it was banned in France. Why? Because in, in France, 96%, 96% of parents who receive a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome choose to abort their child. And so the French court that made this decision to ban the video said that the video's depiction of happy Down syndrome, of happy Down syndrome children is, quote, likely to disturb the conscience of women who had lawfully made different personal life choices, end quote. Now, you know, it's strange, we human beings, I don't know if you think this way, I, I, used, I definitely used to think this way. We think that holiness is about climbing higher, right? So we're, we're holy, we, like, we, do, we go to Mass this often, then we start going this often, and we start saying more rosaries and more prayers and more novenas, doing more spiritual reading, right? We think we become virtuous, we grow in this virtue and that virtue, right? We think, we can think that holiness is about this ascent, right? It's climbing higher and higher and higher and higher. 
But what does the Lord actually show us? That holiness is not about this ascent, but that holiness is about a descent. It's about going down. Right? Because when Christ climbs up, where does he climb up to? He climbs up to the cross to come to the knowledge you have not. You must go by a way in which you know not. To come to the possession you have not. To come to the possession of what you have not. You must go by a way in which you have not. To come to be what you are not. You must go by a way in which you are not. And this way of descent, right, what John of the Cross calls the way of the nada, of nothingness, it's frightening. And so what does Satan do? He always plays upon our fear. Did you know that in the old medieval lists of the deadly sins, there were actually eight deadly sins and not seven? And the top of the list was fear, right? Fear is even worse than pride. This is why the Bible says, did you know the Bible says this 366 times? Do not be afraid, right? One for every single day, every single day of the year. And then there's one more because there's going to be a day we need to hear it twice, right? Do not be afraid. So what does Satan do? He comes to us in our fear and he tries to talk us out of the cross. How often is it fear that causes parents to abort their children with genetic anomalies or with health problems or perhaps a child conceived out of wedlock? It's these very things in our lives that are the most difficult that are the way down. Right? That's what we're looking for. We're not looking for the way up. We're looking for the way down. Why? Because when we go down, we're going to meet the Lord on the cross. And what's so comforting about that is that he is going to be there to meet us on the cross. Right? It's through our crosses that we grow closer to him. Right? By lying down on our cross, we in a sense lie down right next to him. So this meeting, this meeting Christ on the cross, helps us to become what we ought to be. I love the way George Weigel puts it. He says, the entirety of our life, right? He's trying to explain what John Paul II was talking about, right? That our, our, the entirety of our life is lived within this dramatic tension between the person we are and the person we're called to be, right? And we have to descend to become that person we're called to be. Okay, do you remember this children's book, The Velveteen Rabbit, okay? So, um, it's about stuffed animals that are becoming real. So there's a dialogue. So the Velveteen Rabbit, he's just, he's the novice, right? He, he's, he's trying to learn about how stuffed animals become real. And so he consults the wise, the wise man figure, which is the skin horse. Okay? And they have this little conversation about becoming real. So I'm going to read to you a little excerpt because I think it also applies to us. So Rabbit asks, does it hurt? Well, sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. 
Does it, does it happen all at once, like being wound up, Rabbit asked? Or, or does it happen bit by bit? Well, it doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. And that's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily, or who have sharp edges, or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you are real, you can't be ugly. Except to people who don't understand. So think about that. Think of the, think of the mother hugging her Down syndrome child, right? Neither one of them is ugly, except to people who don't understand. Because in reality, they radiate the beauty of holiness. Okay, now what I'd like to do is to introduce you um, via pre-recorded video to some friends of mine. I'm so, I, I feel honored to call them my friends. So they're actually friends of my sister. And I don't know if you heard in Dylan's um, introduction, I, I, had, I had the privilege of directing a television series called Praying as a Family, based on our book, Praying as a Family, because we just we realized there's a, a need for this fostering of prayer within the family, because people want stronger and stronger Catholic families. And so we went around, we did all these different interviews with these families all around the country, and then we made this television series. So Mike and Chastity were a part of that series. So just to tell you a little bit about them. So Chastity is a nurse and a physical therapist, and Mike is a police officer, and I think he was so successful, and he had so many talents and gifts and abilities or whatever, they eventually promoted him, and now he is a SWAT team operator. Okay, so it's really funny, because they have these boys, like their first three kids, I think, are all boys. And so the boys used to play policeman, then they went to play the SWAT team. Okay, so anyway, when, um, when, the, when the kids were still little, okay, they had three kids, um, Chastity was getting so exhausted, right? So she said to my book, I can't, I can't do this anymore. You know, you're, you're a work lover, but I'm like chasing after these boys, and it's just really hard. Like, I need a break. And so Mike was like, okay, what should we do? How about this? How about when I come home, um, that'll be your time to have a break. And she's like, that'll be so awesome. Okay, so that's what they decided. So this is what would happen. Mike would come home, go into his room, and he'd go into the bedroom and change. She'd come back out, she'd hand him the baby, right? And so she's like, I'm free. And so she'd go, and she'd sit down and watch television. <laughs> right? So, um, he, then, and then she'd get back up to help, you know, give the kids a bath, and then put the kids to bed. And then they would both go and watch television, okay? So you see how this, is, this starts going on, right? For weeks, for months. This is not very healthy, right? They're not, they're not communicating with each other. They're just vegging in front of the television. And so one day, um, Mike comes home, and he goes to the bedroom and changes, and Chastity is about to hand him the baby, <laughs> and she says, hold on a second. And she's like, what's going on? Mike goes over to the television, I'm sure it's this huge screen, right? And he unplugs it all over the place, and he takes the television, and he puts it in the garage, and then he's fiddling around in his other closet, and he pulls out a crucifix, and where the television used to be, he puts up a crucifix. And then he puts up an immaculate heart of Mary, and he puts up the sacred heart of Jesus, 
And he looks at his wife and he says, you know, from now on, I want this to be the center of our home. And she was standing there holding a baby, and she was like, I was terrified. I was like, what are we going to do without the television? Do we still know how to talk to each other? Um, and then she said, she said, she later confessed. She said, but you know what? Throughout our entire marriage and all the time we were dating, she said, I was never so wildly attracted to my husband as I was in that moment. Right? Because, you know, that's what every woman is really looking for. What every woman is really looking for is a spiritual leader. And that's precisely what he was being, like this SWAT team operating. <laughs> okay, so, um, you know, it's really funny too. Uh, shortly after he had visited with them or whatever, Mike, he founded this dad's group called Guns and Rosaries. They live in, they live in Texas. Um, <laughs> so they're, they're such an awesome family. So I'm glad you're gonna get to meet them. So right now we're gonna pick up with their story. You're gonna see them. and. That was when they had three children. Okay, so this is when they're about, where they're pregnant with their fourth child, and they just had their fourth child. That's where Chastity's gonna pick up the story. Okay, so this is what's happening right now. So when we found out we were pregnant with our fourth child, we were ecstatic, so happy. You know, pregnancy was normal, and everyone was excited to welcome their new sibling. And then um, when he was born, found out he, when he was born, he wasn't breathing. He was blue. So the, um, he was being resuscitated. Everybody ran in for the NICU and it was chaotic. And um, I remember one nurse started calling out features of his that were different. Um, but they took him out, you know, they whisked him to the NICU, and I was just left there by myself, no baby, just terrified. Um, so over the next few hours, it kind of developed that he's very sick, he has a genetic. Um, abnormalities what they thought. He probably couldn't live through the night, so we needed to call the priest quick. So we called the priest in and we had an emergency baptism. Um, and they actually told us, you know, you need to prepare yourself to bring him home and let him die, because that's what's going to happen. He's not going to be able to live in his state. Uh, and they told us it several times, over and over. Six days after we brought him home, the, that night, he stopped breathing eight different times. And so the morning we went to the hospital, um, they said, you know, if you want him to survive, we need to give him a trach. Um, so I said, okay, whatever you need to do. So he got a trach, he was in the ICU. Um, but he was still stop breathing, it didn't fix the problem. And nobody knew what syndrome he had. Nobody knew um, anything, why he was stopping to breathe. So the doctors hadn't seen it before. Uh, so, the trait didn't, didn't help it, so it's okay, we're gonna put him on a ventilator, which is life support. You know? Okay, so they put him on the ventilator and he finally was able to be stabilized at that point. You know, he couldn't eat, um, they told us he was blind, he was deaf, couldn't breathe. There's really nothing actually that he could do on his own. Um, but he was ours and we loved him. And so we just said, this is God's will, we'll accept it. And it was really a, a process. We never were angry with God or mistrusted God. I mean, really, we felt God's presence. He was so thick at that time. You know, there was no doubt that this was His will. You know, the only thing we had questions of is what He wants to do. <laughs> so, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> All right. So, this new suffering little baby 
came into their lives, right? Completely unexpected. And so, you know, I have the, since I was the one interviewing them, I have like all the transcripts of the whole interviews, right? But not all of it made it into the television series. So I wanna, I wanna read to you what Mike said in the interview when they had, um, when they found out that this is what was happening, right? That they had this severely disabled child. Mike said, I remember when Dominic had just been born. I had the, I had the realization that life changed for us and I was gripped with fear and anxiety, right? Okay, this guy's a SWAT team operator, right? He faces death probably every day and he's gripped with fear and anxiety, right? This is the power of suffering. Okay, oops. So when we found out we were pregnant with our horse, sorry, here we go. Just from the very beginning of, um, in totally out of control, was very difficult of seeing your son suffer um, and being unable to do anything. I think um, really that's where my relationship with our lady um, began because she had to sit and watch her son suffer. So it was hard. Um, but, you know, as Dominic became more strong, he was out of the expectations of any physicians. Uh, it certainly uh, built strength that we had with God. Isn't that beautiful? Like to see this, you know, this huge, big, tough God so vulnerable and so honest. This is what suffering drew out of him, right? This vulnerability, this honesty, this love. You know, he says he's gripped with fear and anxiety. He said it was difficult to be totally out of control. But then what did he say happened? He drew closer to our Blessed Mother, right? Because she also saw her son suffer, had to watch her son suffer, right? Like he was watching his son suffer. Okay, let's see what keeps going on in their story. When Dominic was about to get his G button, when we realized that he wasn't going to be able to eat, I was really concerned about some of the kids. Because they knew the brother had medical problems, but they didn't really, I mean, they were young, they didn't understand all of it. So I said, you know, Dominic's going to get something that's going to be in his belly, and that's how we're going to feed him. And I'll never forget, our oldest said, you're mean, he doesn't have to chew, that's awesome. It's great. Like, that's the reaction we get from kids. We love when kids come up to us and ask about Dominic. Just the other day at Mass, you know, this little girl was staring at Dominic as he rolled by, and the mom felt very uncomfortable, you know. And so we just stopped and talked to her, hi, this is Dominic, and kids are so honest. They ask us all the questions that the adults want to ask, but they're so afraid. And so you'll tell, like, you know, if you tell them, you start talking to the kids, the adults come in. Listen, oh, <laughs> and, you know, they felt like they had permission to learn about Dominic. You know, I think uh, through Dominic and, and God, you know, a lot of people have been coming to know God. And oftentimes it's by seeing mercy. I think people come to know God, um, even if they, they know nothing of Him, by seeing people be merciful and by caring for Dominic. They see that it's a palpable thing that they see us and uh, our children caring for him. We're, we're cleaning up his spit, we're, you know, taking care of his tray, um, you know, changing diapers, you know, 
all these things that you it is shocking to see sometimes and, and people look at that but I think whenever you see that act of merciful love towards somebody who um, can't take care of themselves it brings something out in people so I want you to notice something notice the way that they're interpreting their story right look at the way the kids interpret the story right his brothers and sisters look at the way chastity and mike interpret their story they're reading the story of their lives as suffused with god right remember she said he was so thick at that time right we were asking god what do you want us to do so notice this idea that god is there god wants this for them and i find it very interesting did you know psychologists psychologists say that one of the key determinants of happiness is not your past, not the story of your life, but how you interpret it. One of the key determinants of your life is not your past or the story of your past, but how you interpret it. So suffering invites us to see where God is in our lives, to see that God is in the midst of our suffering and to trust him in the midst of our suffering. So Mike found God in the mercy and love that they were showing to Dominic, right? He's reflecting on that, the love they're showing to one another. And the Lord gives us the words of the gospel to help us further, to help Mike further interpret his situation. So I'm going to read to you again from a part of the interview of Mike's that was not included in the final cut. So Mike said, while listening to the gospel at Mass this Sunday, this line hit me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think this challenge from our Lord is key for all parents, but especially parents of kids with special needs. Parents who have the unique call to care for a child with special needs will necessarily lose their lives. All expectations and the sense of normal are lost in the life of a parent raising a child who's physically disabled. The crux of this challenge, however, is the phrase, for my sake. When this loss, the loss of normal, is accepted for his sake, then life makes sense and true peace and joy are found. However, when this critical component of the equation is missing, the loss of one's life in the sense of normal produces anxiety, depression, abuse, divorce, and death. When suffering that is endured through raising a child with special needs is turned in on oneself instead of offered to our Lord, the weight becomes unbearable. We have experienced both in the past five years and found that losing our life for his sake is not easy. But it takes time, like training. It requires a daily decision. Some days we rely on ourselves too much and things look bleak and the anxiety produced from this self-absorption is suffocating. On the other hand, when we intentionally offer the suffering and the loss of normal to him, things begin to make sense and we are able to take on more and more. We find that we can pour ourselves out endlessly 
when Christ is at the center of that suffering. In Raising Dominic, we can see clearly God's plan to show us how to rely on him rather than on our own expectations and control. God's drama is always more interesting and dynamic than the one we try to plan and create for ourselves. Okay, so look at this. Right? He's speaking about the loss of one's life, the loss of the sense of normal, how it produces anxiety and depression. Right? This is what happens in all suffering. Right? These are symptoms of suffering. And there's this terrible temptation to a negative self-absorption, self-pity, self-centeredness. And so this is precisely where surrender comes in. Right? We're called out of ourselves to meet Christ in that suffering, in that situation that is causing us anxiety, in the person that's causing us anxiety. And so this cross, this cross is where our life story becomes intertwined with Christ's life story, right? It's where we meet him. It's in that suffering. And he's the one who shows us how to surrender, how to allow ourselves to be acted upon, how to be formed, how to be shaped by what's, what God is doing in our lives. I think there's that famous analogy, I believe it's in C.S. Lewis. He has that image of, we're the sculpture, right? You're the masterpiece. And God is the sculptor. And he has to use the hammer and the chisel, right? And it, it's going to hurt. So in order for the masterpiece to be, to be completed most effectively, so that it can achieve the fullness of its beauty, we have to be docile to those blows. We have to allow him to shape and direct our lives instead of resisting, right? Or constantly trying to take back control. I know that's what I want to do. Constantly try to take back control. Okay, so this is what chastity adds to this entire conversation. Oopsie, I might have just messed that up. I recently um, had someone say to me, I think that when women find out their babies are going to be disabled, she should be able to abort them for that reason. And it just really hurt, <laughs> hurt my heart. I'm like, Dominic, it's true, he's a burden. You know, and I think that we do injustice when we deny that people like Dominic are burdens, they are. But isn't that what we're supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to care for one another? You know, and um, yeah, your life is going to change, but you're going to learn how to love because that's all these children can do. And actually, it is really beautiful, right? Again, notice how she's interpreting, how she's inhabiting the story of the, their lives with the Lord, right? And you know what's beautiful too? We can even find this interpretation, right? How they're reading the story in the name they gave their son. So this again was in, in the interview. Chastity said, we named him Dominic after St. Dominic, that great preacher. And we call our Dominic the preacher without words because his life, his presence, his appearance shock people. And through that, he preaches the sanctity of life, the goodness of life. Okay, so that's one of Chastity's interpretations. I want you to listen to Mike's interpretation. So he's interpreting Dominic's medical condition. Remember how the doctors didn't know what it's called? Um, later on, they, they found out it's called the geno, genital palatal syndrome, but they hadn't known that yet at the time. And so this is what Mike thinks it should be called. We would just call it the happy holy syndrome uh, because, you know, he, 
whenever he was around neighbors, when he was in church, he was just a totally different kid. He was just kind of gaze typically in, in his normal normal behavior and kind of look off um, early on and, and when he went into the sanctuary, he was looking at something, he was he was tracking and, and doing these things that he primarily wouldn't do. And it's just a, a great consolation that, that God uh, provided. Um, it's a gift, you know. I think every Sunday we go to Mass, some, some new family comes up to, to us and, and touches him and talks to us about him and just how amazed um, they are at him. And it's nothing that we'd ask for, and nothing that we could have done on our own, because we were just an the, the old family of you that <laughs> before Dominic was, was here, you know. Um, so I think that's what his life is for, you know, is, is he's uh, totally trusting. He trusts us to take care of his body. Um, and I think that is what we're called to do. Um, and it's the hardest thing to do to have total trust in God. And he shows us how to do that on a daily basis. Um, he trusts in us uh, to take care of him, and all he does is pray. You know, Christ's most active time of his life is when he was nailed to the cross and he couldn't do anything. And that Dominic is not going to be able to do anything. But he's going to have a very active life, you know? And that uh, we just pray constantly that um, we're able to say yes to whatever God asks Dominic to do. We have to bring him to do it. And that we'll be able to say yes and allow him to be active and be God's work. Okay. Now this is the um, this is the last clip I'm going to show you, but I just want to apologize just so you're prepared. There's going to be credits rolling to the side, so I wasn't able to edit those out. So just ignore those and notice what Chastity is saying. So she's kind of speaking to moms and dads who have children with special needs, and she's trying to encourage them. We would just call that. changed our lives forever. Uh, he had some profound disabilities and was in the hospital for four months and um, honestly was not giving a good, good prognosis by doctors throughout his life. He's, you know, been, we've been told that he would not, not live. After going through these last four and a half years with Dominic, I think that I would say to anybody that needs some encouragement that has a child with special needs or maybe is pregnant, you know, they're, they're given the diagnosis, um, that this is a great gift. But this is going to be hard, and you're going to cry, and, um, but it's a gift, you know, and that we experience God for these little children. Um, you know, all children are innocent, even when they grow up, these children are innocent, they grow up and they stay innocent. And um, I would just encourage you to accept the gift, and accept the cross that comes along with it, and just know that, um, that you receive this because God loves you. <laughs> this is a this is a special lesson to receive. And there's gonna be time where you're gonna think, man, life would be a lot better if you were just normal. And it's true. Life would be a lot easier, but it wouldn't be better. Okay, so that last line, did you hear what she said? She said, yeah, life would be easier, but it wouldn't be better. 
So I was listening to the interviews again when we were doing the editing for the series, and I remember I was just so struck by this line. Life would be easier, but it wouldn't be better. And so I decided to ask Chazzy, you know, you said this, and what did you mean by it? And so in this personal communication, she wrote back her answer. So I'm going to read her answer to you, and it's, and it's a little bit long, but I think it shows you a side of her and Mike that you don't see in these videos. She wrote, there are times in this life with a severely disabled child that I feel like I'm suffocating, literally being held underwater. I began having anxiety attacks a few years back, and I have what I think is a form of PTSD from the many times we've had to intervene to save Dominic's life. Once was before Thanksgiving, when I was up early making pies. The alarms went off, and I ran in to find Dominic had turned gray. We brought him back, and afterward I went back to making pies. And I remember thinking, this isn't normal. I don't care about pies. I just saved my kid's life. I struggle with depression and often have to pull myself up from loathing the life that I have. What makes life hard is the lack of normalcy, denying my kids the things that other kids with a normal family have, like sports. Because with Dominic, we can't do that. We have to pack so much just to leave the house and make a mental plan in case some emergency happens while we're out. It's just the chronic stress. So in these instances, life certainly would be easier without him. We could be what the world deems normal, and it just may be fun. And it's not always just pleading with God for Dominic's life. There have been times where I've pleaded for God to take his life, to make his suffering end, and mine too. And even in those times, you eventually have to stop and say, your will, Lord, not mine. I'll do this as long as you ask. So in a sense, I guess, the way Dominic makes our life better is that he brings the reality of heaven right here, through those little joys sprinkled in a difficult life, as well as the pains of Calvary right up front in our life. We have constant opportunities to love Jesus through Dominic's distressing disguise, especially when we don't want to. God has given my kids first-hand experience of pouring themselves out for someone who can do nothing for them in return. They love Dominic for his own sake and not theirs, and hopefully they will grow to love him for God's sake. I'm so thankful he is teaching us to love in this way. And while it is terribly difficult, I wouldn't want to change it. But through the tremendous grace we have received from God, I can see that while that fairy tale life may be easier, it would be much poorer. I consider our family rich to have Dominic, to have the little joys the world doesn't see. Last month, I taught him to give me a kiss. It was a tremendous accomplishment. The sufferings to unite our hearts to our Lord is what he gives us. The opportunity to really need God. I'm afraid a life without this severe form of suffering would lead me straight to hell via the road of the world. 
Dominic's limitations make us slow down, stop, and take time to see, really see. We find ourselves on our backs so often through despair, depression, another surgery, and we must look up, open our eyes to see him who saves. It gives us opportunity to unite ourselves with Jesus on the cross and the opportunity to say yes, even when it feels like hell. It's easy to say, your will be done. But when you have repeatedly watched as your child is, really, is being wheeled back for an another emergency surgery that you're unsure they'll come out of, you have to really trust and mean those words. When Dominic was born, one verse stood out to me, and I had it hanging over his incubator and later his bed, and later his bed. Still, this simple verse gets me through many hard times. I find great comfort in it. Comfort in it. it is my very favorite. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my soul, bless his holy name. Do not forget all he has done for you. So it's a little bit overwhelming, I think, just to hear, in a sense, chastity really revealing the difficulty of going through the suffering day after day, year after year. And yet I think what we see that what, what, what makes this testimony of her so beautiful? is that we see the reality of her suffering, the reality of her struggle with herself, and yet we also see the fruit of suffering. And what is that fruit? Joy, right? That's why this is so beautiful, is her joy shines through the words that recount her suffering. And look at this family, right? Look at them. Look how happy they are. Right? It's not a superficial, smiley, smiley, fake happiness. No, it's a rich and profound happiness. And so if we go back to how we began the talk, what do they show us? They show us that happiness is not found in wealth, but in poverty. A poverty that says, Lord, I can't unless you help me. They show us that poverty, they show us that happiness is not found in power, but in weakness. And it's poverty and weakness that make them beautiful, right? Their whole family is beautiful. And they don't just have pleasure in one another. They delight in one another. And they delight in God. And I just think, how much more must God delight in them, right? Because he gives them so much glory by their witness. They don't just have pleasure, they have joy. And in heaven, we will see their fame, right? Their fame in the communion of saints. They'll be right there next to John Paul II and Maximilian Colby and the Holy Innocents. They will be known, known for this noble accomplishment. What is their noble accomplishment? love. They will be known for their greatness of soul. And even now, among the communion of saints on earth, they are known, loved, understood. They belong. 
Why? Because they embrace the mystery of suffering. St. John Paul II said, Suffering is in this world to release love. Right? Look at the suffering that they had with the life of Donald. Look at the suffering of the Down syndrome children. Right? Look at the suffering of parents who have a normal child. What does that suffering do? It releases love. And love is the source of all genuine joy. It's the source of the deepest joy. This is the joy we are made for. The joy of love. God is love. Suffering brings us God. Suffering brings us love. Those who come to the Lord, who come to him when he comes to meet them in suffering, they find joy. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Saint Dominic, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all very much for your patient listening.